You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts. The book of Acts, you'll find this in chapter 9, verse 36. We'll find this on page 918 of the Pew Bible. We're going to be reading together Acts chapter 9, verses 36 through 43. Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 9. Verses 36 to 43, hear the word of God. Now there wasn't Joppa, a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Last time we were together, we considered the healing of Aeneas in the name, by the authority of Jesus Christ. You remember that Aeneas was a man from Lydda who had been paralyzed for eight long years. And Peter's itinerant ministry among the churches had taken him to the coastal town. Without being prompted, he declared to this paralytic, Jesus Christ heals you, rise and make your bed. And the important thing was that the ascended Christ was willing and able to heal him. It was a clear and a vivid demonstration of Jesus' power over diseases. As the psalmist said, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. So it's the Lord who heals diseases, whether naturally or miraculously. He heals He healed many during his earthly ministry. He heals today many by modern medicine. So when there's healing, it is the Lord who heals. And that must mean that Jesus of Nazareth is the Lord. The Lord heals, Jesus healed. He's the Lord. He can heal the disease of the body. He can heal the sickness of the soul. And the healing of Aeneas, as we noted, was instant, easy, and complete. And that's the nature of his kingdom. 
The kingdom of God established by Christ is a kingdom of shalom. It's characterized by righteousness, peace, joy, wholeness. In the life to come, we who trust in Christ will be made whole and full and deeply joyful. He heals the depressed. He binds up the brokenhearted. He delivers the tormented. And the day is coming when all of our miseries will be a thing of the past. That's what it says. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. These are former things. What's interesting is that Luke goes on to record the amazing story of a godly woman named Tabitha. She was a disciple who lived in the old port city of Joppa, the city from which Jonah boarded the ship, if you'll remember. And this woman was also called Dorcas, and she was full of good works and acts of charity. She was especially dear to the believing widows of that community, obviously serving them very well. And when she fell sick and died, all the Christians living in Joppa mourned. She was dead. And the sad process of preparing her body for burial began in earnest. At the same time, what's interesting is that they sent two men to Lydda, which was three hours away. They wanted to consult with Peter to see if anything could be done. She's dead. Perhaps they had heard of the miraculous healing of Aeneas, and they hoped maybe for something for Tabitha. Well, when the apostle arrived in Joppa, her body had been laid out with the grieving widows, and we can only imagine the gloomy scene of people weeping all around in the room, wailing, weeping. So Peter sends them out. He kneels down to pray to the risen Lord Jesus Christ, and having prayed, he turns to the body, says, Tabitha, arise. That's simple. And this godly young disciple comes back to life in the name and by the power of Jesus. Just as Christ had raised Jairus' daughter, so now he raises Tabitha. And it was a miracle. It was a true blue miracle. She gets up, she presents herself alive to others, and it's a glorious foretaste, I think, of the great resurrection of the dead at the last day. It's going to happen. Of course, such an event could not be kept secret for very long, so it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And I think one reason why Luke included this miracle was to demonstrate the power of Jesus. While death is called the king of terrors in Job 18, Christ controls death. The keys of death and Hades are in his hands, And he's in charge. (laughs) He controls it. Nothing can match the sovereign power wielded by the ascended Christ. And this is an illustration. Godly Tabitha was brought back to life. And many who heard of this miracle came to believe in the master who did it. Raising her up, I think, was proof 
of what Jesus is able and willing to do. By his blood, he's cleansed our souls from the guilt of sin. We confessed assurance of pardon. It's true. By his spirit, he's raised our souls from the dominion of sin. No longer under its ghastly grip. And by his power, he's going to raise up our dead bodies from the grave. And there's at least four observations that I'd like us to make. First, this passage tells us something implicitly about the misery of sin. Tabitha was dead. Despite her good works, she became ill and she died. And the reason she died was sin. Scripture makes it abundantly clear. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that Tabitha died because of some particular sin she committed. I'm saying that all who die do so because sin came into the world. In fact, all the afflictions that we suffer, those people we prayed for, all the afflictions we suffer can be traced back to original sin. They are the outworking of that misery which the fall brought upon mankind. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 2, All man's days are full of sorrow, and his works is a vexation. So every disease, every death itself is the consequence of human transgression, and death holds sway over Adam's children. It's one of the greatest miseries of this life. It's one of the reasons why I embrace and cherish the Christian faith. Because I think it best explains my experience in a world filled with suffering and death. Princeton philosopher and noted atheist Peter Singer claims that suffering and death is the most important argument that he can find against the existence of God. It's something Asaph almost stumbled over, right? Suffering. And yet, if you think about it, no other religion or philosophy can make sense of a world in which there is suffering and death. Look at the creation. It's beautiful. Look at your body. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. And yet there's death. Parents die. Loved ones die. Neighbors die. Why does that happen? Peter Singer says, it just does. That's his answer. It, it just does. And yet scientists will tell you that the human body is designed to live indefinitely. They can't figure out why it dies. So why do people die? Well, the Bible says that death is the wages of sin. Tabitha's death is simply a representative of fallen human condition. This charitable young woman lost her life, and it was a bitter cup to drink. And death makes no distinction. It's not partial. Paul says death spread to all men, women, children. 
Old or young, rich or poor, beautiful or plain, it makes no difference. Death comes to all. And not all the combined skill of the world's physicians can keep death at bay. When the appointed hour comes, it strikes. And earthly life is extinguished. And according to the psalmist, we go down into silence. Or according to Genesis, we return to the ground and no one can escape it. The curse of death is universal. It's the penalty of sin because God said of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Literally, dying you shall die. So all throughout scripture, we're reminded of just how serious a threat this was. The wise man says, what man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? When my time comes, when your time comes, your body will be laid in the grave because it's appointed for man to die once and after that comes the judgment. And like all of those ancient patriarchs in Genesis 5, you live so many years, you die. So make no mistake, life is short, death is certain, and eternity is long. And oh, how often the Bible reminds us of our mortality and the brevity of life. It likens our lives to a breath or an evening shadow or like withered grass. Scripture compares human lives to leaves that shrivel and fade. Death is a cruel enemy. It spares no one, and in its wake it leaves nothing but grief. As J.C. Ryle notes, nothing cuts so deeply into a man's heart as to part with beloved ones and lay them in the grave. And I know that death is neither easy to consider nor comfortable to discuss. I know that. In fact, King Hezekiah, you remember, wept bitterly when he was told that he was about to die. The dreadful separation of soul and body is an abnormality. It's not what God originally intended, but sin came into the world. And there are some, and maybe there's some here, I don't know, who are enslaved to the fear of death throughout all their lives. And this is one of the reasons why Jesus came, to deliver us from the fear of death. He did this by destroying the devil who had the power of death. Not as if Satan no longer exists, but he's totally defeated. It's like we say our team destroyed the other team. Jesus destroyed him, ripped away his authority. And now Jesus wields the key and he determines when and how somebody dies. And yet for many, the thought of death is scary and extremely unpleasant, and I get it. I understand. It's not something about which I like to focus because it's chilling. But we cannot live in denial. We cannot deny the fact that we're going to die. The wise person makes preparation in light of impending death. As Isaiah said to Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, set your house in order for you shall die. 
And since Jesus delivered us from the fear of death, we can look death square in the face. And as we hold on to the promises of God, we can make preparations. And you ask me, how do I do that? How do I prepare? Well, have we received Christ into our hearts? Have I repented of all known sin? Am I trusting in his merits? Do I look for, to him for my salvation? You see, the guilt of sin lays heavy upon mankind and the day of judgment looms large. And so I ask myself, have I sought God to forgive my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness? If so, then with Solomon, I can say in good conscience that the day of death is better than the day of birth. Isn't that a strange way to put it? The day of death is better than the day of birth? Ecclesiastes 7.1. But the Christian can say that. That's the first observation, but the second one is this, that the text tells us something explicitly about the power of Christ. The notion of power, it brings to mind things like ability and strength and force. He who has more power than another is able to overcome the second. So those in Capernaum in Luke 4 said, with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. Jesus has power. And we're taught here that he wields unlimited and almighty power. He's able to do things that are great and supernatural and miraculous. In response to Peter's fervent prayer, he brought Tabitha back to life so that against his power, neither disease nor devils nor death itself is able to stand. Isn't that incredible? That's tremendous news for a Christian because Jesus wields that kind of power for our benefit. That's what he says. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die, ever. Do you believe this? And Martha said, I believe it'll happen in the resurrection. And what did Jesus say? I am the resurrection and the life. You'll never die. The sentence, though the sentence of death is just, though the effects of death are grim, though the bands of death are strong, you're going to live. And that's amazing. The soul is going to live forever and the body is going to be raised from the dead, and that's the power of Christ. In Joppa, Tabitha's life was restored by the name and the authority of Jesus, and by that name, which is above every name, she came back to life. So there is a limit to death's power, and it must bow before Jesus. It's true, generations have come and gone, and they've returned to the dust. Countless people, countless people who were wise and rich and strong and beautiful are now in the grave. And death has won its many victories. It's laid waste to all of mankind before us. But not even death should frighten the Christian because Jesus conquered. He removed the sting 
He's overcome its terror. And as the friend of sinners, Jesus came forth from the dreaded tomb and he proved once for all that he's stronger than death. When he comes again at the last day, that last enemy is going to be destroyed. Matthew Henry says, death is not only a conquered enemy, but a reconciled friend. He says that. Death is not only a conquered enemy, but a reconciled friend, not sent to hurt the soul or to separate it from the love of God, but to put an end to all our grievances and complaints and give us a passage to eternal life and blessedness. That's what it's become. And for this tremendous victory, the Christian ought to be deeply grateful. We should be the most grateful people on earth. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Spurgeon says that we're so prone to hold fast our grievances and to let go of his benefits in our minds. The daily grind, the small annoyances of life tend to crowd out our thanksgiving So like David, you and I have to strive to remember and to delight in the benefits of Christ. The wages of sin are death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. William Perkins, uh, one of my heroes, he was an English pastor and theologian long time ago, was one of the foremost leaders of the Puritan movement. Once he accompanied a young man to the gallows. The young man had done something worthy of execution. Having climbed the ladder, the young man lowered his head, pale and terrified. And looking up at him, Perkins said, are you afraid of death? And the young man said, no, but of something far worse afterward. So Perkins, as the story goes, asked him to come back down and When he did so, he explained to him the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ. The man burst into tears and he prayed earnestly. And Perkins then shared with him various biblical verses, especially those dealing with the assurance of salvation. And not long afterward, the man climbed that ladder with readiness and he went to his death, according to witnesses, as though he was looking into heaven itself. That's victory. But it leads to the third observation, which is what this text says about the faith of believers. You see, the miracle of raising Tabitha was performed by the power of Jesus, so it's not about us. It's not about us working hard or doing good or being right. None of us are. (laughs) If we could look into each other's lives and minds right now, we'd see none of us are right. It's all about Christ who accomplished salvation and who will return to the earth. And when the people of Lydda and Joppa heard about Tabitha, it says they turned to the Lord. They realized that it was the ascended Jesus who raised Tabitha. So it should be no surprise that those people trusted in Christ. This sign was used as a means to evangelize the entire region. And as we said last week, such a miracle cannot convert anybody. A miracle doesn't convert. Jesus performed all kinds of miracles, and many of them never came to faith. But the miracle points 
to Christ who has power to perform it. And it proves that he is who he claimed to be. And it proves that the apostles were sent by him. And when the people heard that he overcame death, they turned to him in faith, believing in his name, trusting in his blood. And I think one of the great comforts in the hour of trial is the power of God's Son. He can turn mourning into dancing, loosen our sackcloth, and clothe us with gladness. But you see, whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. That's imperative. You believe in God as he revealed himself. Three persons, one God. And there's plenty of evidence for the existence of the living God, despite what Peter Singer says. Simply look around at the beauty and the complexity and the diversity of creation. That's evidence. And in addition, there's the inspired testimony of the Holy Scripture. God has spoken to the world and he's revealed himself in the word. And we believe that God will reward those who seek him through Christ with eternal life. You believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. We have this internal, subjective evidence of our conversion. It's like the psalmist who said in Psalm 66, come and hear all you who fear God and I'll tell you what he's done for my soul. That's evidence. We've come to know God through Jesus by the power of his spirit and he's a real personal triune God with whom we enjoy fellowship. That's evidence. And in the hour of trial, whatever that might mean for you, the power of this God incarnate is great comfort. He is able and willing to save the worst of us. He invites everyone to fall back on his power and all it requires on our part is faith, which is a gift. People in this world exercise faith every day. Did you know that? They trust all kinds of things by faith. They rely upon science. I use technology that I have no idea how it works. I have faith. They trust weather forecasters and they trust government. And they may be things that they don't fully understand, but they have faith in these things. But none of those things are capable of saving sinners to the utmost. So the most important faith is that which is fixed on Christ who saves us from death. And this is what the psalmist said. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. Some trust in science and some in technology. Some trust in government and some... In the, in the sword, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Because you and I have many things in this life to face. All sorts of things happen to us. We have to endure bad things without knowing why. Job. We're constantly tempted by trials and affliction to become pessimistic and cynical. Faith in Christ enables us to experience joy even in the darkest hour. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. I watched a video recently of a man who renounced his faith after 30 years of being a Christian. 
He had been to Bible college. He was a graduate of Westminster Seminary, my alma mater. And yet, as he went on in this video to, to say, he lost his grip upon Jesus. And he confessed openly that in the years leading up to his apostasy, he hadn't been in the word of God. Didn't read it. Didn't hear it. And he said he avoided scripture because there were too many issues that he didn't want to face. And his grip on the promises loosened and his heart was turned away from Jesus. The promises of God in Jesus Christ. He's powerful. He's able. He's willing. That leads to my fourth observation, which says that this text says something implicitly about the force of godliness. It was the demonstration, as you know, of Christ's power that grabbed the attention of those around. The multitudes were amazed, but that was then. What about now? Because we believe that such miracles like this no longer are needed. The inspired scriptures are now complete. There's no new special revelation. So there's no longer any need for miracles to confirm the message or the messenger. The Bible's been confirmed. The apostles have left the stage of history. And it says in Ephesians 2, the household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the foundation is laid. The superstructure is now being built. So how is the power of Christ displayed today so that crowds can be amazed? No miracles. Is there anything today that gives evidence that Jesus is still at work? And the Bible's answer is the force of godliness. Jesus works powerfully in the hearts and lives of his people. And that's where his power is exhibited. True godliness is powerful. Paul says, some have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. Flip it. There are those who affirm its power, and they do it practically by their fruits. William Norton tells us that when the emperor arrested the great preacher Chrysostom, I hope you've heard of him, he was the bishop of Constantinople during the fourth century, the emperor tried to make Chrysostom recant, and Chrysostom shook his head, no. The emperor said to his guards, throw him into prison. <laughs> no, said one of the guards, because he'll be glad to go because he delights in the presence of his God in quiet. Well, then execute him, said the emperor. One of the soldiers said, well, he'll be glad to die because he wants to go to heaven. I heard him say so the other day. There's only one thing that can give Chrysostom pain, and that is to make him sin. He said that he was afraid of nothing but sin. If you can make him sin, you'll make him unhappy. And so history tells us that after being exiled twice, he was finally deliberately killed by enforced traveling on foot in severe weather. And his chief claim to notoriety rests not only upon his preaching, but upon his personal holiness. 
the force of godliness. And it's no different today. Christ is at work in the lives of his people, and that power is displayed most notably through brotherly love. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. They'll turn to the Lord. It's a compelling demonstration of the power of Christ. And my prayer, and I hope it's yours, is that he'll enable us to live in such a way as to point others to Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, this is an amazing event in the history of the early church. When by the power and authority of Jesus, this young girl was raised up. We thank you for it how it demonstrates the power of Jesus and his willingness to use that power for us. We ask that you'll help us to praise his name with joy and gratitude, for we ask it in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.